Welcome to another edition of the NCBI podcast. I'm June Tinsley, Head of Communications and Advocacy with NCBI. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Porik Barnes. Thank you very much, Porik, for um, having the time to have a chat with me. And I look forward to hearing all about it. Hi, June. Listen, I'll tell you, before we start, uh, uh, two quick caveats. I think there was a, a famous Groucho Marx kind of remark about, you know, him not wanting to join any club that he was a member of. Well, by the same token, I'm not sure I'd want to listen to that interview that I was given. So if your listener numbers plummet, I, I, you know, please, I pray <laughs> your forgiveness. And look, at the other thing is, funny, I was chatting to my family about this, and uh, my daughter said to me, Dad, no trauma dumping. And I think what she meant by that was, she was bringing me back to when she was a lot younger after I lost my sight. And she was saying that we used to go to, you know, family gatherings and communions and confirmations. And she'd say, Dad, do you know when you start talking about being blind, nobody ever asks us back? So, <laughs> listen, <laughs> I, I, I'll try and keep it positive enough today without maybe sugarcoating it either. But listen, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. No problems, Boric. <laughs> Don't you love the, the honesty of children? Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you need to have a thick skin around them all. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, that's why we love them. So I suppose um, for the benefit of our, of our listeners, I, I always ask each of my guests to um, tell us a little about, it, about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think to say now that I've I kind of had an unremarkable life is probably giving it a bit more credit than it deserves. Um, I had a rowdy birthday this year, so I'm 60. I was born up in the northwest, a kind of again an unremarkable but happy kind of a childhood and teenage life. In 1980, I trained to be a primary school teacher and started teaching in Dublin in 1983. And I, I loved that June. Happy Great. part of my life. Now, when I look back at it, I was kind of very much interested in the interactions that were going on in the classroom, the dynamics, how children learn, kind of motivation, that kind of thing. So maybe it was a harbinger of of things to come and, and getting more involved in psychology. Um, we went traveling in the late 80s and 87 to the Middle East. Um, just look at a very interesting and different culture. Great to see an educational system that was different than ours and how it worked. And we got to travel to places like Jordan and Syria, wild places, Egypt, West Clare, even. No, <laughs> I won't include <laughs> West Clare in that. But basically, June, I would say the first kind of downturn in my circumstances happened in 1990 with Desert Storm and the invasion of Iraq, of Iraq, sorry, meant that we had to be um, kind of evacuated. And almost right. like the Ukrainian situation, but perhaps not quite as bad. We wound up in London. It wasn't quite where we wanted to be, but we'd no choice. But I pursued my interest in psychology and studied it. We went back to Dublin in the 90s and I finished my studies and uh, that was great. I didn't dive into a career in psychology then because it was a, a bit of an uncertain area. And uh, there were difficult times, June, probably before your time. The 1990s, interest rates were at 14%. Um, 
Bertie Ahern was talking about devaluing the punt. It wasn't really the time to dive into an uncertain profession with a wife and young family who had just come from a war zone. So I yes. took a, a very certain and unremarkable decision to join the civil service. And I worked there for about another 20 years in educational research and policy support and school evaluation. As I say, fairly unremarkable stuff. Uh, I gave that up three years ago and returned to my first love. So I work on my own terms now as a psychologist in private practice. It's mainly psychotherapy work that I do. But as I say, it means that I can shape the work the way I want and deliver it the way I want. And yep. because of because of sight loss and, and being blind, that makes it an awful lot easier. It's a kind of a privilege for me to work that way, as opposed to trying to moulding a large organisation around, you know, a visual disability. But I suppose that probably brings us to the area of, of, of blindness, which I imagine is, 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 is where you want me to be to be at. Well, no, it's interesting to hear the, the, the journey you've, you've been on from, through your career. Um, and I suppose if you mentioned that you took the plunge three years ago to um, move out of the civil service, was that um, because COVID presented an opportunity or was it any way related to COVID, do you think? It was a little bit of both. Also, my family were at a stage where they were taken up and they were cared for. I really wanted to try working on my own, um, working in a large organisation despite what people will tell you about equality, diversity and inclusion matters. Yet there may be policies in place, but if you're working in a large organisation with a thousand people, it's very hard to get all of them uh, to understand the way you work. So I suppose I could jump out uh, just because of my circumstances and other stuff. But listen, it's been a great decision for me. And honestly, I'm really happy. I think, I suppose the point that I would make is You know, with sight loss, if you can shape the work yourself, deliver the work yourself on your own terms, it makes life a a little bit easier. And I have to say, I'm I'm really happy at the moment. Well, congratulations. Delighted to hear that worked out for you. And tell us, at what point uh, did you lose your sight? June, people will tell you that they will remember the day, the year, the time, everything. So the 30th of June, 2011, um, about half past 11, surgeon looked at me and said, you're not going to see again, you know, not now, uh, not any time and not anyhow. So six months previously, my retinas had unexpectedly kind of detached. Um, And it, it came kind of out of the blue. And initially I was told, oh, that this is not a problem. We'll sort this out. We'll re-. But look, at, as I say, not to do too much trauma dumping, uh, <laughs> it really didn't work out the surgery, not through any fault of the surgeons. They did their best. But I was really unlucky and I actually never managed to get my sight back. So I went from being sighted to sightless, kind of literally overnight. Now, I often wondered what would it be like if I had been born with the condition or yeah. had to maybe endure what maybe some of your other listeners have to endure, which is a very slow sight loss to RP or AMD or something like that. But listen, that was the the, 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 the hand of cards that I was dealt. So I just kind of, I just, I just had to run with it. I suppose maybe what makes 
that particular presentation more difficult. There is a lot of trauma because you go from literally leaving your daughter, you leave, you know, you're, which I remember. I remember leaving my daughter to school that particular day and wandering up just into an optician to say, God, there seems to be something going on with my eyes. And yeah. literally, th- th- that was the end of it. I never actually managed to get my sight back. But listen, as I say, that's 11 years ago. And I look back on it now uh, very differently than, of course, I did back then, you know. Well, no, I'm sure because I mean, you, you, that is an absolute shock to the entire system um, and to who you are and your independence and, and, all, and all the things that go with that. Um, and I suppose what things do you think sight loss changed the most for you? Yeah, yeah, I think you probably hit the nail on the head there too when you said it kind of changed um, who you who you are or who I was at that time. And like I imagined initially that it was all about the practical kind of, you know, how do I stop myself walking into walls? How do I dress myself? How do I feed myself? How do I get to work? How do I do my work? But in actual fact, that wasn't where the real battle was fought. As I look back on it now, to, it really was that issue of, did it change who I was? I mean, I would have liked to think that it didn't. And I started off on the journey. Can I remember my son saying to me, um, as you can see, I'm quite the family man. But I remember my son saying to me, listen, Dad, he said, it doesn't matter what way you look, you know, uh, or what way you're doing things. You still, you, you know, you still make me feel the same way as a dad that you always did. Now, beautiful. Yeah, hugely important because that that battle was kind of going on. But the difficulty was because I preferred to see, well, okay, I acquired a disability, but I still have all the other abilities that I have. That kind of falls flat in its face when you look at yourself the way other people see you. And I remember standing uh, in the centre of Ennis, where I'm from, waiting for a taxi with my guide dog. You know, and somebody coming up to me saying, sorry, where's your pot? And I said, beg your pardon? You know, where's the pot with the money that you want me to put in? <laughs> and I'm going, God, is this what I am? Is this the way that people see me as an object of charity? And I suppose that probably encapsulates the battle. But in the way I wanted to see myself and the reality of the way other people see you and the assumptions that they make. About That's very interesting, you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I suppose now I warned you that I was too much into psychology and perhaps <laughs> given, given the, the thinking about these things too much. But really, if you're asking me what it was to change, it was that battle between your identity, the way you want to see yourself and, you know, mediating that with the way that other people see you and the way those two things become intertwined. Uh, that was that was a major change for me. I suppose the other thing really was meaning and the kind of purpose that I had in life and the kind of things that I got joy in from life. You know, 10 years later, 11 years later, I'm still doing those things, thanks be to God, but I'm doing them June in a very different way. Like, yes. I love sport, but I access sport now in a very, I actually access sport in a very emotional level as opposed to a technical level because I'm just completely behind my team, you know, at an emotional yes. level. Um, and that's a fine level to be engaged with it at an emotional very level. Passionate level. Yeah, and, and reading. I still love reading, but you know, it's it's through audiobooks. Um 
I still walk, but in a different way. I love, uh, we say, the seaside, but my sense of the way the air catches me, the smell of the sea air, the sound of the ocean crashing. I have this sense of being at the seaside. So what I'm not accessing it from a visual point of view. I am still completely immersed in the experience. Now, I know that now, but yeah. I didn't know it back then. So I suppose there was a little bit of a journey maybe between adjusting to the loss, but yes. then kind of recovering or reclaiming the territory by doing things in different ways. But thanks be to God, it's all possible. And as I say, you meet me this morning, you know, in a happy place in my life, thank God. Which is really, really reassuring to hear. And I suppose, it, again, it goes back to the um, the honesty of, of children. Um, mm. Your son saying that to you certainly yeah. boosted and bolstered you up to reassure you that you can be the, the parent that you've always been. Um, and that was, I'm sure, very reassuring to hear. A hundred percent. And like, again, you know, maybe anticipating, you know, what all people, God, Park, you know, how did you manage it? You know, and like it was stuff like that. Like it was family. Now I'm very lucky in that way. I did incredibly supportive. Would I be sitting where I am chatting to you now if I didn't have the support of that family structure? My son was fantastic. Daughter was fantastic. Sarah was absolutely like they would have guided and supported and encouraged me through every step of the way. So, you know, there is no way I would have coped and adjusted and adapted and grew the way I have if it wasn't for the support that I had from family. And I would include friends in that as well, June. And it goes back to the whole kind of identity thing again. Like, if I were to go back to that teaching job, which only lasted in four years in Dublin, but I still meet with those guys and we go on a foreign trip every year for the last 25 years and more. And like in that time, some of us have lost parents. Some of us have lost wives and partners. I've lost my sight, but it, it hasn't changed the relationship between us and the support of nature. And the guy said, look at Barnes, you're coming with us. That's the end of it. We always did this and we're always going to do it. So you get a huge, like you get through this. It's not as if I'm some kind of soldier fighting this fight on my own. If I was, I would have failed dismally, June. I've got through, mostly through family. And as John Lennon would say, with a little help, actually, with a lot of help from my friends. So I am eternally grateful to those people. And uh, if they're listening, look, a big shout out to all of them. I credit them, if you like, with where I am today, not just myself. And I suppose that's a, a crucial thing for people to, to um, have that support mechanism and to develop your own kind of coping strategies um, around that with the support of family and friends. Um, and I hope um, NCBI was also supportive to you um you could obviously have dipped in and out of different services that we offered to you as well june there there is no way that um you know obviously all the mobility training uh that i did all that kind of thing but right up to this day i mean i would have been 
when I lost when I lost my sight back in 2011, I was an absolute technophobe. If somebody started talking to me about syncing my contacts across Bluetooth and airdropping them onto the Z drive and then uploading them, <laughs> I would have I would have crossed the street to get yeah. to the other side. You know, it really. But what I learned straight away, like technology isn't an accessory for the blind. It is a leveler. It's an equalizer. Like this is the way that I can still read because I learned how to do audio books, you know, audio description on the TV, JAWS on the computer, all these kind of skills I learned through the NCBI. And in terms of shout out, long suffering Joe Lonergan down there in, in Kilkenny. <laughs> Joe runs a tech club. Of, he does. I, know there, I know there are tech clubs all over the country. Joe just drew the short straw uh, and got a dinosaur like me. But, he, you know, it's a wonderful group, uh, June, because, you know, you can log on there on a Wednesday and say, lads, what do you do about an air fryer? How do you use that? You know, what about the controls of the heating system at home? Like, he brings people together with common problems that can be solved around assistive technology. And you know something, June? We've a load of crack as well. And uh, it's brilliant being able to feed in. And there's also, I would say, individual support. I'd have to give a shout out to Peter Parridge Bowles over at Limerick as well. I think he was new to the organisation. And, you know, the new guy in gets the... Get, doesn't get the plumb draw. So we got, oh, here, listen, will you give some support to Boric there around social media, etc. Yeah. So it, it's great that there is that individual support. So I would say, and, you know, this isn't just a word for my sponsor, but like, you know, <laughs> genu you know genuinely, you know, there is huge support available sure. uh, from the NCBI. And uh, yeah, I have been a very, very grateful, very grateful recipient, you know. And tell me, has there been any kind of lighter moments that you can share with us and um, that you've experienced on this yeah. journey? Look, it, it's funny, you know, and it, we, we picked up on this before, you know, the whole identity thing and who you are, and you know, and, and, and daughters. And I remember like playing when I could see playing peekaboo with my daughter and kind of explaining to her, listen, just because you put your hands over your eyes, that doesn't mean that I can't see you. But, you know. <laughs> That kind of thing, but it's funny. I was going to work one morning. My wife used to drop me in the centre of Venice. I mean, a kind of a routine. I would go around. It was a hatchback car. I'd open the boot of the car to let the dog out. And just this particular morning, as I did, the phone rang, and I said, "God, work! I better take this." Close the boot. Sarah was in the driver's seat driving. Her work were on to her. She heard the boot close. She assumed, right, guy's got the dog out. I'd better get to my work. So she drove off with the dog in the back. <laughs> Jesus, what am I going to do now? But that was the amazing thing, too. About three or four guys kept sprinting. Stop the R Park. We've got you. We've got you. We'll hold you here. And another three or four went sprinting off down after the car. What I didn't realise was, like, all these people would see me in the morning. I never saw them. Yeah. But they would be watching out for, they would know my routines. They would know that, obviously, without a guide dog, I can't make. So it, it was just wonderful. You kind of this sense as a blind person, and people will talk about invisibility. They might be invisible. But there are people out there looking for you. And, you know, it was wonderful. Now, it's not always helpful as well. I mean, if, 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 if you know, if you can tolerate it, there, there, there's just one more. And I, I used to tell my, my psychotherapy students this 
a lot of the time because I, I was teaching psychotherapy in Mary I. I used to get off the train. And, you know, that's that's easy, but there's a very busy road just outside Colbert Station um, that you have to cross. But it's kind of lucky in that there are traffic lights almost immediately when you exit the station. But this particular morning, there were traffic works and there seemed to be some sort of an obstacle. I couldn't get past the dog froze. He's not going to move, you know. And uh, how am I going to manage this? And an elderly man came up beside me and he went, gosh, I never knew you were blind. God, I need to be blind. Listen, I have a little prayer book here. And if you would take this little prayer, you know, I'm going to pray for you. I remember saying to myself, Jesus, like, all I want to do is get across the road. (laughs) I mean, I don't don't think praying me, but it's funny. Like, the point I would have made to the students is, like, that is very much, I mean, look, he was a good-willed individual. Of course he was, yeah. in my welfare at heart. But it was sympathy he was overcome with. There was a guy at the traffic lights who could see what was going on. And when the the pneumatic drill or whatever it was stopped that was going, he slapped on the side of the traffic lights and he said, listen, I'm going to press the audio cue here if that's helpful. And then he said, listen, will I beckon your dog? And he said, listen, here, here, here. And the dog, of course, when he had the queue, walked around all the pylons and all the the obstacles and the obstructions and over. And I remember saying, that guy kind of got it. Yeah, It was empathy that he said. He said, look, what does this guy need to help him get to where he needs to be across the road? And, you know, and I would always make that point um, with the students when they're walking with clients, you know, it's not really about sympathy. It's actually about empathy and understanding what the other person is carrying and True. being able to identify, you know, what you can do to help them. So look at that. That was great. I've loads of train stories, June, but I'm sure you haven't got uh, you haven't got enough time to <laughs> to bear with them, you know. Well, I suppose one final question, Porg, is the the question I ask all my guests. Really, is what one piece of advice would you give to another person recently diagnosed with a sight loss condition? Well, I think we've kind of covered a lot of it, um, June, in that I would reach out to the organisations, the sight loss organisations. I would reach out to the NCB. I know people freeze from that, the National Council for the Blind of Ireland and, and rebranding notwithstanding. I hope like there is a little bit of a barrier there as well. But w- when you get over that, I mean, it's impossible to do it on your own. So there is help and support out there. So that would be the first thing I would say. The other thing is more back to the old psychology and the psychotherapy. June, it hasn't always been plain sailing. Like I flew for the first three or four years and then I hit a serious bump on the road and I had to pick myself up and start over again. Like it's not all plain sailing. But I think if you have a growth kind of a mindset, and what I mean by that is an approach that says, right, I'm not going to let myself get frustrated about that. I've had a setback now. What can I do differently to get around it? And when you get past that first kind of setback, when the next setback comes, as it inevitably will, because this thing kind of catches up with you at different points in your life, I have no doubt in two or three years' times it will catch up with me in a different way and present me with huge challenges. But if you've overcome one challenge and you look 
to the things that got you through that last kind of bump in the road. They're the things that you can rely on to get you through the next bump. So it's kind of about building building resilience, I suppose, and just developing sense. I know, well, look at I hit really, you know, patchy places in the past, but I got through and I'll get through again. So as I say, I don't think you ever kind of recover uh, from sight loss. You just learn ways to contain it. And if you can possibly develop a kind of a positive attitude or a growth mindset towards it, use your friends and family, you will get by. That's the end of the sermon now, June. That's probably more than we're looking for. <laughs> Not in the slightest. No, I, I think it's a, a valuable question because the feedback I've received is um, listeners are kind of pleased to know that they don't, what they're feeling isn't um, that they're not alone and that uh, other yeah. people are um, in the same boat and that mutually um, through meeting peers who are blind or vision impaired or connecting with family and friends that they can, as you rightly say, start building resilience and um, overcoming some challenges and and enjoying life. Um, and that's really what it's about. 100% June, absolutely 100%. Well, listen, I'll just... Um, say thank you very much Porig for uh, taking the time to have a, a chat with us this morning um, if any of our listeners wants to access NCVI services feel free to do so on 1-800-911-250 or jump onto our website ncbi.ie for all information on our services and referral processes um, all these podcasts are available on different podcasting platforms and on our YouTube channel so feel free to like share and subscribe but for now, Porik, I'd just like to say thanks very much for having a chat with us. It's been a pleasure, June. Thank you very much. 